So Money, episode 1298, Dory Clark, author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. But a lot of it is is really just persevering through the bullshit of these people who don't like your stuff. They're the gatekeepers. And you have to make your peace that, okay, that guy maybe is not going to like my stuff, but that doesn't mean the stuff is not good. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're going to talk about the benefits of delaying gratification, having a plan as it applies to your money and your career. Our guest is best-selling author, Dory Clark, whose new book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, offers ways on how to break out this endless cycle that we're all in and create the kind of interesting, meaningful lives that we all want. Dory is a top business thinker, Duke University professor. She's been on the show many, many times. In her new book, The Long Game, she shares unique principles and frameworks to apply to your specific situation wherever you are in your life using stories from her own career as well as many professionals' experiences. Here's Dory Clark. Dory Clark, welcome back to So Money. You are the most popular So Money guest. I think you have, you mean, you've written so many books. I mean, the podcast has been around for six, seven years. In that time, you've probably written three or four books. All those times you've come on the show, plus others, perhaps. So I think you 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 get the gold trophy here. Oh, man. Well, I am honored. Thank you so much. It's always a treat to get to hang with you. This is so special to have you back after the pandemic. I don't think we've really connected since all these many months. I'm excited to announce to our audience, you have a new book out called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short Term World. I want to talk about you know how this can apply to our financial lives, what some of the mistakes people make in having more too much of a short-term focus uh, in their careers, in their personal relationships, and just the day-to-day grind. But first, what inspired you to write this story? I mean, you come to this with so many books already written in the area of professional development, uh, personal branding, succeeding in the corporate workspace, succeeding as an entrepreneur, the long game was an inspiration that came to you pre-pandemic or was it the pandemic? It was pre-pandemic, actually. I literally got the acceptance from my editor on February 28th, 2020. And the next day, the first case of COVID was diagnosed in New York, where I live. And within a week, the entire world was insane. Um, so it was a funny time to be writing a book about long-term thinking. But this, this has been percolating for me for a while, for sure. Wow. So let's follow that timeline. You get this book deal pre-pandemic, really pre-pandemic or the or the green light. And then of course the world shuts down. How does that impact the thesis that you went in with or did it just cement the ideas that you had going in or did it change? How what was the impact? Well, I know within a few weeks of my getting the book contract, I st- I had started to 
announce it and talk about it to people I knew. And there was a guy that I knew casually and he, I you know, said, oh, I have this new book that I'm working on. He's like, what's it about? And I said, long-term thinking. He's like, ha, we don't need that anymore. That sounds pretty useless. And I'm like, oh, oh. God, maybe he's uh. right. <laughs> but, but I didn't, I didn't want to believe he was right. And a part of me was like, no. No, well, that's what makes a good book is something that's counterintuitive that makes you go, wait a minute. We know the merits of delaying gratification. We've read the studies. The good things come to those who wait. All those expressions. Right. And, and the reason that they are things that we pay attention to is because our instinct is not to wait. Our instinct is not to plan even, you know, in the financial world. I always say, you know, this may sound basic, but so few people do it is planning your financial goals out before you decide how you're going to budget, how you're going to save, how you're going to invest. Let's start with the why this is so difficult for us, Dory. I mean, this is not necessarily human nature. Some of us are better at it than others, but at the core, are we just built for instant gratification? Yes. <laughs> we mostly are built for okay, instant great. gratification. Okay, great. Next question. No. Uh, <laughs> but, but why? Is it the caveman, cavewoman instinct? Like we didn't always live to 100, right? We lived to be like, if we were lucky, at 35. And so this idea of like retirement and like the future just wasn't a thing. It's abstract. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for all of us, I mean... I wrote a book about long-term thinking. And for me, I will say unequivocally, if there is a choice between getting something great now and getting something great later, let's have it now. I have never been a fan of patience. This is, this is I'm not writing a book about long-term thinking because I think, oh, patience is so great. Let's all do that. No, I actually <laughs> hate patience. The, the, the deal is that it, I find patience so irksome. I have had to reconcile myself to patients because the truth is however much we wish and we want things to come quickly, mostly they don't. And so in order to be sane and in order to be successful, we have to find a way to deal with that reality, even if we don't like that reality. That's where I'm coming from yeah. in the long game. You know who I blame? I blame the media sometimes. They they tell the quick story. They don't tell you, they tell you the beginning and the end. They don't tell you the middle. And I and speaking specifically about like stories about entrepreneurship and startups and people who become successes, comedians, actors, direct like you think it's an overnight success. I've never heard of this person and now they're on stage. I've never heard of this actor and now they're winning an Oscar. They must have started yesterday. No, they've been doing it for 30 years. They almost threw in the towel and then they got a call from their agent and the show became a success. And I I applaud you in the, you know writing this book because I think we need to pull back the curtain a little bit and say like good things happen to those who wait, actually, in fact. And you've experienced this in your life. This book, I believe, is perhaps more personal than any book you have written. Can I can I go that far and say that? I mean, all your books are really transparent and and bring a piece of you to the table. But this this one, would you say, is uh is quite revealing of your own experiences? Yeah, it's de it's definitely the most personal. I mean, I have a whole chapter in uh, all of chapter nine is basically about my failures <laughs> because I think no, I mean, I I think that that oftentimes you know it, it would just be so inappropriate for me to get on this high horse about okay, everybody, you should make like me and be a strategic thinker because I I work hard at it and it is something that I I think I do and I aspire toward, but. There are absolutely frustrations and setbacks that come with it. And I think sometimes 
if you've achieved, you know, a little bit of success, it's easy to tell stories about failures that are like, I'll call them funny failures. Like, oh, well, when I was 16 and I was working in McDonald's and that time I got the customer order wrong, you know, it's like, that's kind of cute. But we don't actually mostly hear about recent failures, raw failures. And so I, as I was writing this book in the midst of the pandemic last year, I decided that I would look back on the very recent past. And so I, for 2019, pre-pandemic, I gave myself five goals that year, five big goals. And they were things that were, they were stretch goals, but all of them were plausible. All of them were theoretically attainable. And one by one, as I advanced through 2019, they all just kept crashing down. Mm -hmm. And so I tell the story about all, all of them, what they were. I was going to be publishing a book with this best-selling, you know, a super famous author. I was going to be um, adapting uh, a screenplay written by my favorite director into a musical. These were all like birds that I had in hand with commitments. And then they, they all blew up. So over the course of the year, four out of five of my goals didn't happen. Thankfully, the fifth one did. But even if you're at a certain point in your career where you have some success, you keep having failures and detours. And I think that's part of the story too. But everything crashed and burned in the pandemic. I mean, few things really th thrived. And so maybe it's that your list is just in is just not happening in 2020. Maybe it's happening in 2025. Is that something that you tell yourself or are you convinced that these will never happen? Well, these were to be clear, these were all things. This is about 2019. So it was all pre-pandemic that it was that it was going wrong. It wasn't because of the pandemic. It is true in theory that certain things could um, could pan out. I mean, you know, life is long and things could happen, but I'll give you one particularly humiliating example. There was a major media outlet that I have always admired. And in late 2018, they reached out to me and a guy I knew there said, Dory, we're going to start a new column and we're, we'd like you to try out for this column. We're interviewing five people. And, you know, I heard about it. I'm like, oh, that would be perfect. And so they made me submit two writing samples, you know, thousand words a piece. I sent them in waiting, waiting, waiting. And uh, they didn't pick me, but they said, oh, you know, we're thinking about maybe making it a rotating thing. So if it rotates, would you be interested in the future? I'm like, yes, you know, keep in touch. So it they do, they rotate it a few. And so they keep rotating. It's like the first person and the second person and the third person. I'm like, excuse me, are they going to call me at some point? <laughs> so, so I'm like, I, I ping the guy. I'm like, hey, remember me and the thing? And he's like, oh yeah. He's like, could you send us some more samples? So I write more samples. So I've now sent them four thousand words. They've gotten a very good look at me. I'm like, hey, you know, maybe I could do a thing. And fi finally, after another mm, five months of very politely badgering him to respond to me, he says, yeah, thank you so much. We're going to go in another direction. And I said, okay, well, is there anything else I could do for you? Can I, I come with you? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to write something. And, uh, and he wrote back and his response literally was, hope you'll keep reading. <laughs> oh, yikes. So I don't think that's happening in uh, 2022. So oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Dory. Thank you. There's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tough things along the way. That's tough. And yet I, 
I feel fortunate because I, I've also had a lot of successes, mm-hmm. but but a lot of it is is really just persevering through the bullshit of these people who don't like your stuff. They're the gatekeepers, and you have to make your peace that okay, that guy maybe is not going to like my stuff, but that doesn't mean the stuff is not good. Right. So so connect the dot for us with this experience and the promise of the long game. You know, you didn't get this opportunity. But tell us what you did gain and how that will ultimately benefit you in your future. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll tell one more quick story as perhaps an even better analog. So when I was in my early 20s, I got a master's degree. I I thought it was going to be an academic. I applied to multiple doctoral programs, got turned down by all of them. And, you know, my dreams of being an academic theoretically were crushed. But today, I teach at Duke and Columbia, uh, you know, really top business schools. I've been teaching for years. And what I discovered is that you can, you can always climb in the window. You just have to believe that there is a window to climb in. Yeah. And it actually did work out better for me. I mean, instead of having to spend, you know, seven or eight years doing some kind of ridiculous dissertation and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, I was able to talk my way into being a professor based on my experience and the work that I've done. And so similarly, I don't know, you know, if I'll end up writing for this publication or if that'll work. There are plenty of other publications that I write for, but ultimately I think there's a couple of principles at play as I think about playing the long game. The first is understanding that there are multiple paths to being successful. We get ourselves in trouble if we wed ourselves too closely to one particular route. Oh, I have to have a job at Apple. If I don't have a job at Apple, I'll die. Well, you know what? <laughs> if the HR person doesn't like you, I mean, I'm sorry. Are you going to go kill yourself? Like, no. Hey, it's great to have goals. It's great to have ambitions. But yeah, m- being so narrow and particular and insistent upon certain very specific things, it's like setting yourself up for disappointment. That's exactly right. And so maybe it's not, it must be Apple. Maybe it's a great tech company, or maybe it's, you know, I want to live in Silicon Valley, or I want to be in the tech ecosystem. There's a lot of ways to do that. And so the second point is just try to be directionally correct. There, there are so many times that we're going to have detours. We're going to be rerouted. Uh, there's going to be unexpected delays. You know, insert your favorite traffic metaphor. But ultimately, what we need to do is just keep moving in the right direction. Yeah. And eventually, we we will probably get there. Or if we don't get there, we'll at least be a lot closer yeah. than we were. Such a good reminder. It's sort of like that saying about, you know, don't strive for perfection, but progress. So maybe things didn't, per- well, it wasn't 100% what you envisioned, but was it 70%? And and even if it was completely different than what you envisioned, uh, uh, you know, how you were going to reach a goal or the outcome of a goal, what did you learn? How did you grow? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn you don't like to do? I love that. Just kind of go in that right direction. And and so advice for someone listening who may be at a crossroads, they, you know, they've got, maybe they've already got a job offer. It was starting a month, it pays great, but you know, they also may want to go back to school and that would be an investment. And that's, you know, a a bigger commitment. And there are some unknowns to that, right? They're not going to make money for a while. It's a bit apples and oranges, but I think a lot of people 
are you, you, you may have been, at, I was at that crossroads at one point, you perhaps were, do I stay in the workforce? Do I go back to school? What's the calculus there? And, and how do you apply the, the principles of the long game to this decision-making crossroads? All right. I have three responses. Number one, obviously, all of you listening, if you are at this crossroads, it's about what feels right to you. Number two, let me tell you what to do. <laughs> and feel free to ignore it. I would say mm, close to nine times out of 10, the right response is not to go back to school. Oh. And let me, now, good people can disagree about this, but let me say, as someone who teaches at various schools, yeah, oftentimes there is a real societal bias. Certainly it's you know something that a lot of our parents are into. It's a, a kind of lionization of, uh, of education, that, that education is the panacea that's going to solve all your problems. Oh, if you have this degree, if you have this credential, it will take care of it. Education is great. And if you have unlimited time and if you have someone else paying for it, then by all means, that's mm. wonderful. But if you think about opportunity cost, it is extraordinarily expensive. And I know a lot of people that are massively over-degreed because they didn't know what to do and they got education it's nice. I mean, it's better than watching cat videos, but it's extraordinarily expensive. And there are other ways at lower cost that you can attain those credentials. So education is certainly the right answer if you're in a field where it's mandatory. <laughs> and it's certainly the right answer if you've thought about it carefully and, and you say, no, this really is what I want to do. This is what I'm passionate about. This, this I've thought about it carefully. You have a financial plan too. Like It's not just, I'm going to, you know, get all the debt and then figure it out. That's exactly right. But if it's something like, I don't know what to do, oh, I guess I'll get a degree, I would really right. not recommend that. And then the final piece, the third piece that I will say is in general, there's a principle that I share in the long game that I hope might be helpful is a framework, which I call optimize for interesting. And what I mean by that is I think in our society there, you know, you were mentioning Farnoosh, the sort of the, um, the abbreviated stories that get told in the media sometimes right. to our detriment. And so, so often the narrative is, is either it's bifurcated. It's either follow your passion or it's, we'll just go make money, you know, or something like that. And actually I think that that puts a lot of pressure on us because obviously the societally approved answer is follow your passion. That's kind of, you know, the American dream, but, uh, but also a lot of people just aren't sure what their passion is. And as a result, they often feel ashamed about it. They feel like they can't do anything until they figure out what their passion is and sitting there and banging your head against the wall and saying, what is my passion? What is my passion is not the way to find your passion. Instead, I like to suggest optimize for interesting. Don't worry about what your soulmate career is. Instead, do something that's interesting to you. You know, low bar, just is it interesting? And if it is, keep doing it. And if it's not, you can figure that out and pivot, but you'll at least have gotten experience and you'll have gotten data. Wonderfully put. You know, we talked about the pandemic and that has uh, definitely clouded some of our perception of whether it's worth it, right, to even have a plan because life then happens and, you know, you're standing there, you know, without any direction, feeling helpless. So for those of us who are listening who may have, become distrustful of planning 
you know, they say that there's expression like we make plans and then God laughs. Life happens. And then you're, like I said, you're sitting there with your hands in your pocket. So what do you say to those people who believe that, hey, you know what? I got to live for today. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. There's a lot of YOLO people right yes, now. YOLO, hashtag YOLO. It's a thing. Yeah. Apparently. And, you know, I, I certainly can appreciate that at least in the short term, uh, that might make sense. You know, we, we've been cooped up. We, you know, a lot of us are frustrated by travel restrictions and things like that. You might just say, you know what? I want to hit the road. I want to you know, be a nomad for a few months or whatever it is. And, you know, great. Like we all, we all need to get things out of our system. And also it is important if we, if we actually define strategic planning, at least the way that I do, which is, you know, if we're really thinking strategically, how do we do something today that will make our life easier or better tomorrow? That, that is a question that I think is very useful to answer. What is the thing that Dory in 2025 will be like, yeah. hey, good job. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> you know, I, mean, yeah, patting yourself. I actually highlighted that in your book. What is one thing I could be doing now that will make my life easier several years from now? Um, I, I don't know if I, if I was thinking long game, but I did, you know, t- 10 years ago, I knew I wanted to have a family someday, but I also knew that my career was not going to end. That I, if anything, I wanted to continue building on my career. And in our culture, that's pretty tough to be able to build your career as a person who wants to also have a family parallel to that. You feel like you have to make all these trade-offs and a lot of times your career takes a step back. You don't have to ask me, ask you know all the millions of women who uh, were forced out of the uh, employment world in 2020 who to take care of other people. So I was like, okay, um, I need to figure this out. I need to put in some systems now, put in some, put in some things in place now so that when I, if I'm able to have kids in my thirties and you know, I can sort of manage it without the burden of begging my employer for time off or the burden of, um, wondering who it can I even work, you know, at this point because childcare is so expensive. And so I started to, I wrote a book. Why would writing a book mean that you could have financial freedom raising kids in your 30s? Well, because a book is a platform, a book gives you brand authority, it gives you expertise. And when I got laid off, which would not have been a great time to be having a kid. Uh, but when I got laid off, I had a book and that book allowed me to continue working and actually make more money because I became my own boss. I became a speaker and became more prolific in my writing and I wrote another book. I, so all these things happened because I decided to do something for myself that would give me ownership of my career so that in 10 years, if I didn't want to work for someone full time and be beholden to their hours and their restrictive, you know, sort of work culture and trying to raise a family in that is very difficult because I saw it happening around me. I saw women coming out of HR in tears, you know, six months pregnant because I didn't realize I only had, you know, so much time off paid and now I'm going to have to go on short-term disability and that, that, the. so it's like, okay, yeah, the system has to change, but what can I do now to start planting the seeds to have more career control at a time when I'm going to have uh, to sort of take care of another human <laughs> in addition to myself. And so that's just one example, but I feel like I have taken your advice 
to practice. And I think there are so many examples of that. I mean, just more linear is probably, you know, knowing you want to buy a house in five years. How do you reverse engineer it? We just had on uh, Ron Friedman. I'm sure you know him. He's the author of Decoding Greatness. And it's all about reverse engineering, which I sort of feel there are parallels to what you're talking about, what Ron shares. Yeah, absolutely. I I was uh, an early reader of Ron's book, and he was an early reader of mine. So we're we're good friends, and I think pretty philosophically aligned on that. So I love that. I think that's a perfect example, Farnoosh. And you know, ultimately, if it literally doesn't matter to you where you end up, you know, fine, okay, cool. Just you know, play it, play it day <laughs> by day. Take it, you know, you can you can be reacting to the situation all you want, but ultimately, for most of us we have some kind of long-term ambition. It might, it might not be super crisp, but we have a sense of where we'd like to go. And I think where some people get hung up is they assume, well, you know, it, why bother to make a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, whatever, because the circumstances are going to change or I don't know how I'm going to do it. Guess what? If it's a 20-year plan, of course you don't know how to do it. Like the, the yeah. world is going to transform. Write it in pencil. What's the homework? You know, what are the things you need to be doing periodically? Perhaps one is like revisiting the, the game plan. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think I think there's a couple of key pieces. One, which you know is is hard for people, but really important, is making sure that we have enough white space to actually be even asking these questions to ourselves. It is not that it takes a huge amount of time to do long-term thinking and strategic thinking, but it takes a little time. And most of us are so chronically overfilled and so chronically overscheduled, largely because we have not updated our policies. You know, and when I say policy, I don't mean a corporate policy. I mean an internal policy that we set ourselves about how we're deploying our time as our experience and stature has grown. The way you used your time when you were 22 is not how you should be using it when you're 32 or 42. We have to get mm-hmm. more selective in terms of our criteria and our filters. So I think that's number one. And number two, to, to your point in, in the long game, I do talk about this question of sort of analyzing your your North Star and you know understanding, again, these things can change. You know, It's fine to you know, have a provisional sense of it, but understanding are the goals that I'm setting uh, in congruity with each other. I mean, I to your point, your wonderful story I, about your family and making plans. I tell a story in the book about a guy named Tom Waterhouse who got this amazing promotion to be the COO of his company's Singapore office. Everybody wanted this job. It was this big deal. And he ended up turning it down because what he realized was he really wanted to get married. He really wanted to get a family. And he knew that this job was going to be so all-consuming and he was moving to a foreign country that he wouldn't have time to make a social circle. He wouldn't have time to meet anyone. And he would basically, this is the thing most people don't really consider is the opportunity cost. He realized Mm -hmm. that if he said yes to the job, he would de facto be saying no to his chance to get married and have a family. And so he proactively turned it down. And for two years, he just had to sort of sit with this knowledge of like, wow, I guess, you know, like he wasn't dating anyone. He's like, wow, you know, I guess I gambled on that. Maybe it didn't work out. But eventually he did meet a woman who became his wife and he did have a family. Um, But you really do have to make a leap of faith sometimes. You don't know, but 
if you're deciding based on the right criteria, you can at least feel good about the part you can control, which is the process. You have to really know yourself too, though, Dory. I mean, for that person, that 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 example you just gave, to, to, for him to forfeit an incredible career opportunity because he, in at his core, knew that he would be more fulfilled having a family and 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 being in a relationship that is remarkable and culturally i don't know if this was in america or elsewhere but you know we sometimes as a man you know you put more value like traditionally on your title and your job and all the other things the society deems you more sort of successful when you become the coo as opposed to like when you become a dad I think. I don't know. Maybe that's changing. Um, it is. It is changing, but it's still cult norm. Just look at, you know, the Barnes and Nobles. There are so many books on how to climb the corporate ladder. Not a lot of books written about like how to be a good dad. All this to say, you really do need to know yourself and stick to those beliefs, which can be tested at times, I think. Yeah. No, it's it's enormously difficult. And there, you know, when we know our North Star, whatever, whatever it is, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. There are, there are difficult choices to be made. And part of why some people actually never flourish is that they're just not willing to make those choices. It's like, do you, you know, do you rip off the bandaid or, or do you not? I mean, as, as sort of the reverse uh, experience, I was in a relationship with somebody years ago who was not, not happy about my job. Um, she was, I think, a little um, possessive uh, and and felt upset that I was devoting a lot of time and energy to my work. And I knew that she would never be fully happy for me in terms of what I was doing. And I would not be able to accomplish what I wanted professionally because she was erecting a lot of barriers. She was really positing is it she was positing it as, you know, kind of it's 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 me or it's the job and I I was not willing to make that trade-off and so I ended up ending that relationship that was one of a number of reasons but it was extraordinarily difficult but I I realized I am never going to achieve my full potential mm-hmm. in my career if I have someone who is forcibly limiting it. So it sounds too, you have to know your boundaries. You have to know what your limits are sometimes to, in order to get to a limitless place, you know, to get to the North Star, which seems so far away. You need to design your life in such a way that sets you up for success. Absolutely. And it's it's not easy to make those choices, but when you do, it's extraordinarily powerful because frankly, most people are not willing to make the choice. Most Hmm. people are not willing to do the work to slog through in those periods in between deciding to do something and actually accomplishing it. You know, there's this often this like long, dark period where you're not getting a lot of positive feedback and you're like, is it not working? Like, how am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And you just have no idea. But if you are willing to get through that trough that is so uncomfortable and most people are not, but if you are and you get to the other side, there is often an enormous moat between you and the competition. It is almost an insurmountable advantage. And mm-hmm. so that that's what's exciting for me is in writing the long game, I wanted to try to create a framework for people so that smart, talented people just 
stop giving up too soon on their yeah. dreams and they can keep going and they get to the other side so that they can actually accomplish what they're meant to accomplish. Before we go though, Dory, we got to touch on the reality that when you're talking about choices, making choices, what affords choices? One of the things that affords us choices is money, having savings. You talk about financial stability and having savings as a tool to give you more agency, to give you permission to choose the the harder things in life that might take longer to materialize, that that may be risky. That is absolutely right. And you know, I, I think in in many ways, all of this parallels so much the world of of investing in finance. It in your career, it is so much more valuable to do small things repeatedly and consistently over time as compared to trying to do some big, huge thing once, and then you never do it again. Because interest compounds in the financial world and also in terms of your reputational capital and in terms of your connections and in terms of your professional development and skills. So I, I think it's really flexing the same muscle in a lot of ways. But yes, I am a big fan uh, of really thinking through finances because when we get desperate, we make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be a long-term thinker, you need to have the stability and the clarity to be able to say, okay, you know, one of the most powerful things that we can do is to invest in big ideas that might not turn a profit right away. I, in the book, I quote Jeff Bezos from a Wired magazine interview. And he said that what, what he thinks makes Amazon so successful is that its competitors are willing, they're only willing to plan and invest on a three-year timeframe, that, that those investments have to turn around within three years or they get scrapped. And he said, in Amazon, we invest in a, t- in a seven-year timeline, and you know more than double. And when you do that, it enables you to tackle bigger projects, more meaningful projects that if they, in fact, pan out, can be huge for the company. And we have seen that with so many of Amazon's initiatives like Prime, like Amazon Web Services. And it's like that for us too. Financial stability really can be the bedrock uh, that enables us to to make choices that might not be profitable right away, but could be incredibly profitable over the long term. Yeah, all that compounding plus room for error. There's more room for error when you have a longer timeline. If you fall, you can pick yourself up and over and again. It's like it's like your investment portfolio. If you start now and you've got 30 years, who cares if the stock market has a bad week? Really, you're not retiring in two weeks. You're retiring in 30 years. Dory Clark, thank you so much. Always such a rich conversation. I I look forward to having you back for your next book. For now, though, congratulations on The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Farnoosh, thank you so much. If folks want to learn more or pick up a free long game self-assessment about strategic thinking, they can go to uh, doryclark.com slash the long game. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much to Dory for joining us. Again, if you'd like to check out her book and take the assessment, check out doryclark.com forward slash the long game. See you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. Money.